morning, friends and family. First of all, I want to thank you for the many prayers that went out uh, this past week for Kathy, myself, and Kathy's family and the passing of her father, Joel. Uh, I just wanted to mention with the added stress of the COVID shutdowns and the social distancing um, in the midst of the sadness and the grief, the days went overall as good as they could have gone. And we're so thankful for your prayers and just um, that the family was able to be together in the passing of her father. So I want to mention that uh, Troy has taken time with uh, the website to put up on our Grace Chapel page a prayer wall. So if you have prayer requests, you can send those in. Um, questions, comments, um, and as uh, we will keep you informed because we're we're anxious to get back together uh, corporately as soon as we possibly can to be with each other, and we're missing those relationships, I'm sure, and I echo that for everyone. It's been a rather strenuous time just being apart. On Saturday. May 3rd, a few of us, May 2nd, Saturday, May 2nd, a few of us are going to uh, be outside to work on the our spring cleanup. And so if you're interested or able, we will keep our distance outside, but there's a lot of cleanup in the spring and we're going to work on that. And I suppose there'll be a few people inside, but uh, very low number numbers. And uh, we'll be we'll be at work at that. Wanted to mention too, we have uh, the opportunity to have uh, Scott with us this morning, representing Oak Hills Camp, and he comes and shares with us uh, as he has for years in the spring to give us the updates. And there's going to be some uh, interesting ones coming with the the virus and the the adjustments that Oak Hills needs to make under the circumstances with the virus. And so I'm going to have Scott come up here and he will he'll share with us. And then we'll have a moment of prayer before we have the sermon. Morning, Grace Chapel family. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to, to be with you uh, today, even if it's this, this, uh, this method, it's still just a privilege. Uh, first of all, thank you guys for, just your ongoing prayer and support for camp. Uh, you've been so meaningful over the years and just such a blessing and a uh, partner with us in ministry. And uh, I just, first of all, I want to start just by reflecting just on what God has done. Uh, I've been a part of, of camp for several years now. And over the last 11 summers, we've had the privilege of serving close to 1200 individual kids. And uh, many, many of those kids have come to faith in Christ grown in their walk with the Lord. Um, several of those kids have now grown up and are serving on staff, summer staff, and, and some of them on year-round staff with us at camp. And so God has used uh, the ministry of camp to really build a foundation in their lives of God's word and his truth and, and taught them how to serve. And um, just thinking of this past summer, I was so encouraged. We had such a great staff worked well together. The, the age range of our staff was from 14 all the way up to 80. 
and they were just uh, just a perfect just uh, not I shouldn't say they, they weren't perfect, but they were a great representation of the body of Christ. And uh, there were many times I'd walk around camp and I'd just be moved to tears uh, just getting to see the, the staff whether they were working with campers and just hearing the laughter of the campers and those relationships that were going on or going into the kitchen and seeing staff who were just pouring themselves in, in the food and serving these kids or um, the, the staff that are cleaning the bathrooms or mowing the lawns, uh, that they were working together um, for the purpose of, of serving the body of Christ. And just uh, a couple of uh, things that came out of last summer. These are some quotes from some of our summer staff about the campers they serve. One one uh, staff member said, this week was a kind of rededication week for her, speaking about one of her campers. She was saying at the beginning of the week that she felt like she kept messing up and wasn't a good Christian. But just seeing her realize that God forgives was amazing. One of our a guy campers said uh, about one of his campers, he started out rough, but we had lots of deep spiritual talks about life. Such a transformation this week at camp. And uh, another girl camper, uh, she loved chapel and was very excited to see her growth as she made new friends and accepted others into her group. And uh, one more thing, a, uh, a letter from uh, one of our girl campers. Uh, this was a, a first-time camper. My time at Campbell Kills this summer was unforgettable. As soon as I got to camp as a first-time camper, I felt immediately welcomed and loved. Before camp, I was considering being baptized at my church, but it was a little unsure. But at camp, God made it clear that I should be baptized and publicized my faith in Him. God connected me with all week uh, through the speaker, the songs, my counselors, friends, and people I didn't even know before I came to camp. And I knew this is what He wanted me to do with my life. My week at camp really inspired me to follow God for the rest of my life. And that's just so encouraging, and I uh, just want to encourage you as a church family that, that you're a part of all of that that has happened at camp through your prayers and your support uh, and encouraging kids to come to camp and staff to work at camp. So thank you for that. Uh, just some other updates. Um, throughout this last year, we've been continuing to work on our cabins. Uh, they've been remodeling cabins at camp. We got all the girls' cabins done uh, last winter, and now this winter we're working on the boys' cabins. And part of that process is to actually winterize them so we can use them in the winter as well. And um, we even got to see a little bit of that. We had a few small retreats this last winter, and that's just a blessing, and we're excited to see how God is going to expand that as we can use the camp ministry more than just summer months, but throughout the fall, winter, and spring. We also had a just a really neat day on President's Day. We had a community day where we invited you know, whoever wanted to to come out to camp and experience some, some fun winter activities. We've got a tubing hill we've developed. We do a broom ball on the ice. And we've got some outdoor archery take that we do. And then we had our uh, one of our camp speakers come and share gospel illusions all afternoon. And we had close to 160 people from the community and a lot of faces that we'd never seen at camp before and just got to meet some new families. So that was really, really encouraging. And we're excited to see how God will expand the ministry of camp into the winter as well. Um, just uh, to finish up, uh, you probably are wondering how does – uh, COVID-19 going to affect camp this summer. And we've been busy the last few weeks just exploring lots of different possibilities of how we could adapt. Um, but we're still waiting from uh, a word from the uh, state of Minnesota on what their expectations are for us. 
And so uh, we're just trying to prepare the best we can to be able to uh, respond to what those guidelines uh, are going to be. So we actually ended up putting a, a pause on our, our summer camp registrations. And uh, just because we, we assume we're going to have to change some things as far as scheduling and size of camp. And we're hoping in a couple of weeks to be able to open up registrations again and, and be able to uh, lay out what the summer is going to look like. Um, but please be praying for us through that. There's um, a lot of changes that are going to have to be made that, and uh, ways that our staff are going to have to adapt. We're still praying that we can have camp. Again, we don't, we don't have that final word yet from the state of Minnesota, but we're, we're real praying that we will have some campers. Uh, but even if we aren't able to, um, we're still committed to uh, our summer staff and pouring into them this summer and continuing to grow as a staff. And so I ask you to pray for that. We don't have a full staff right now. Um, this has made it difficult to, to hire everybody we needed. So pray that God would continue to provide the staff we need for the summer for whatever that looks like at camp. And that God would give clarity and direction for us. Um, and just a commitment to use the resources he's given us uh, for his glory and for building his kingdom, however that looks this summer. So thanks again for partnering with us, and uh, we look forward to, to sharing next fall how God worked this all out. Thank you. Thank you, Scott, for uh, your personal work and your character as a hard worker and your representation of uh, Camp Oak Hills, leading, guiding there through this uh, time and for the years you've done it. And so I wanted to take a moment before we begin with our sermon, before we look into the word, just take a moment of prayer. And I would hope that you continue to remember um, to stay in contact with each other. Make it a point. Sometimes it takes a little extra initiative. Um, write a letter. Make some phone calls. Uh, drive over to somebody's house and sit in their driveway and wave at them through the window. Uh, there's been some great things already happening, and it's wonderful to see the just the resiliency of people and the the willingness to cooperate and yet to get out and try to do what can be done while cooperating. So let me pray for us. Father, we're just thankful for your grace and your mercy. We're thankful for your love. Thank you for your presence with the Marsh family. And as... Uh, this past week, they said goodbye to the loving husband, father, friend, Joel, Kathy's dad. And Lord, we just uh, we thank you for the many prayers and the people, your people that came around and supported. And we are grateful and thankful to the church for responding in such a way with all those prayers. And Lord, I want to lift up those who are especially struggling through this time with the, the COVID-19 and whether they personally are dealing with it or a loved one or they're reeling and struggling with the effects of the shutdown and hospital workers that are daily laying down um, selfishness and putting it aside and stepping in to serve in very trying times and be with them and especially others that are working for a cure and wisdom for governors and leaders and president 
And we just thank you, God, for your grace that you know, we can trust you to lead us through whatever we're facing. And Lord, be especially close with uh, Tom and Sandy as she is now on hospice care, that you would be close to them, God, in a special and powerful way with your presence and let them know that you love them and you're there for them. And we just uh, we thank you for your word, Lord, as we open up this morning and look again at uh, the promises we have and give us wisdom and insight as only you can. Give us understanding into your word, Lord God, and open our hearts as you speak to us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So if you would grab your Bibles and if you would open up to 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to continue on in this journey as I started on Resurrection Sunday talking about uh, Peter's teaching. And so I'll read the first couple verses here and we're going to focus just on two verses today and try to get through them as much as we can. So I'm reading from 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now verse 6 and 7. 8 and 9, the verses that we're going to focus on. So from verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by the fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I've entitled this sermon of greater worth than gold. And it's basically focusing on these verses where Peter talks about these trials that uh, these particular Christians, these believers that are scattered because of the Roman persecution, the outpouring that came out from uh, the leaders there in Rome against the, the church, against Christians, and they were scattered. And so Peter's writing them this letter to encourage them and to assure them of what they're going to face, uh, that God is still with them. So it's interesting in verse 6 as we read, in this you greatly rejoice. Now the this part includes probably from verse 1 all the way through the whole letter in in this response that God has and that the work of God in and beyond the trials and sufferings and difficulties that we don't always see. So he says, in this you greatly rejoice. And 
um, it's interesting if you look at the big picture to ask yourself in this, you greatly rejoice though. And now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. How does greatly rejoicing grief and trials all fit into the same sentence? And so that's why we carry on from resurrection day that the, the fact of the resurrection and the fact that we've been born into this living hope that grief and trials and rejoicing can be in the same sentence. They can be in the same hour. They can be in the same day. You can find them in the midst of your life. You think back a little bit about some of the things you've gone through, some of the trials and tribulations, and there was tears and laughter at the same time, within the same framework. And so Peter is offering this as a viable option to these people who have been scattered to rejoice in the face of grief, to rejoice in the face of trials. And so rejoice greatly. It's an, it's an odd word in the Greek. It has to do with uh, um, almost like jumping for joy. And it may look ridiculous in the time of stress and sorrow and struggle, <clears throat> a joy that's so full that it has an effective outward um, it causes one to move. And so I kept, as I kept going through the studies and the, the word came up again, they would say, well, this means jumping for joy. It's that kind of rejoicing. It's the rejoicing, but it's, but when he says in this, in this, it's, it's knowing, it's the knowing, it's the context of what those struggles are surrounded by. It's the knowing that God is good. It's the knowing that God is for us. It's the knowing that Jesus has rose from the dead. It's the knowing that death is not the final. Death is, does not triumph. The resurrection triumphs. It's knowing that there's always hope. And it's knowing that God has promised to keep those who put their faith and trust in him to continue on that journey that God promises to keep them. So this kind of rejoicing, it's not just heard. It's not just audible. It's also seen. It's a joy that affects the eyes and the hands and the heart and the feet. It's a moving about kind of joy. And we have an example of it, the same word that's used in Acts chapter 16. And I want to turn there and I want to read this little story. Acts chapter 16 is recounts a story when Paul was in uh, prison, actually, and I'll start reading about uh, Acts 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, they're in prison. They've uh, been beaten and dragged about and thrown into prison. They were stripped. Uh, it says they were severely beaten in verse 23. And so now they're put in jail. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake that shook the foundations of the prison. All at once the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him 
and to all the others in the house. Basically, they just told them the story of Jesus. They told them about everything that's taken place. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. So here's a guy that was just about ready to kill himself. And a couple minutes later, he's filled with joy. And so this is this idea of greatly rejoicing. And so we can greatly rejoice knowing the context in which these trials come to us. The rejoicing described here doesn't depend on circumstances because he's writing to people who are scattered, writing to people who are going through trials. It's not the circumstances, but it's the truth in the circumstances that God hasn't given up on us, that God is sovereign, that God is in control, and that God is at work. And I was thinking just in the midst of this uh, virus crisis, and somebody mentioned to me that uh, they heard a phrase that people were calling this a God pause. It's an opportunity that's outside of anybody's control, really. And but it's an opportunity that the world is facing right now to take a God pause, to stop and take some serious questions to pause and to ponder. And we're going to do that this morning as we go through these verses. But here's a simple question. What have some of your previous trials taught you about God that you might not have otherwise known? We're learning some things now about ourselves, about our nation, about other nations because of this virus, because of this trial that we would have not previously known. And hopefully those of us who are pondering deeply, those of us who are seeking for answers, we're asking some questions of God and we're going to learn some things. So you might look back at your own life and you say, what other trials have I gone through? And what did I learn about God in the midst of those trials? Second question, what have your previous trials taught you about yourself? First, what have they taught you about God? And then what have they taught you about yourself? Third question, as you consider the trials you've gone through with God's help, what are some things that you can be sure of in the present trials? Whatever you're facing right now, what are some things you can be sure of because of God's activity in the past? And it's interesting, just the wording of the sentence, I'll go back to this again and again, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. In the fact that God is faithful. In one of the, the uh, commentaries I read this, that uh, Peter was addressing the, the points that are surrounding this phrase, in this you greatly rejoice. John MacArthur said these five things. A protected inheritance. A proven faith. And the word proven means that it, it's being proved, like being cleansed, being refined. A promised honor, that as that faith is proven, honor and glory and goes to God and goes to the person. He will one day say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. A personal fellowship, that even though we don't see him, we believe in him. And even though we don't see him now, we are experiencing this glorious joy that he talks about later on in verses 8 and 9. And then there's this present deliverance. In the midst of whatever struggle you're facing, whatever trial 
whatever difficulty, you always have options. You can turn to despair. And sometimes that seems to be the easiest thing to do. And the hardest thing to do is to turn toward gratitude and thankfulness to ponder the situation you're in. And so he says, in this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. I looked up some other versions and how they made this phrase that you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. The NIV, you may, the NIV it says you may have had to go through and for a little while, if necessary. One of the versions, the Barclay version says, even if at this present it's necessary. The King James says, though now for a season, if need be. The NET says, although you may have to suffer for a short time. Philip's version, even though you are temporarily harassed by all kinds of trials. West version, if perchance there is need for it. The Young's literal translation, if it be necessary. So there's many trials. It says they're temporary, but even in the temporary, some of them are more long term. There's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, financial, relational, job, all kinds of difficulties and trials. And grief is a normal, healthy emotion in the face of loss. And no one handles it exactly the same. If needs be, for a momentary time, you go through some of these trials. Professor Erwin Lutzer, he said this. He was fond of saying, God often puts us in situations that are too much for us to show us that we can learn that no situation is too much for him. There's a saying that sounds comforting, but it's not necessarily always true that God will never give you more than you can handle. That's pretty uninformed in a sense, because good parents will give their kids more than they can handle to help them grow, to help them go toward maturity. In uh, this phrase, a small or a little or a temporary Corey Ten Boom is uh, said that when a train goes through a dark tunnel, you don't throw away your ticket and get off the train. You sit still and you trust the engineering. Elizabeth Ellis Elliot, he, she said that you can't get to tomorrow without going through tonight. So you may have had to go through. It may be necessary for a season, Peter's saying, to go through various trials. Trials, struggles, difficulties, breakdowns, breakups, changes, failures, disease, viruses, hiccups, potholes, pulled muscles, strained joints, decay of your teeth, physical body ailments. All of these and more are normal parts of life. It's not the kind of trial we face that matters most. It's how we face them that matters most. And this is what Peter is telling them. 
in this you greatly rejoice. That is, if we want our trials to have the developmental, um, maturing, growing effect on us, that we need to be careful how we look at them. And who wants a trial that doesn't have the capacity to enlarge you, to mature you, to humble you, to improve you, to transform you? Pain without progress is the lowest form of darkness. It's quite possible. I'm too young and maybe uh, I, could, I could say not as well informed as I could be to answer this question. But depending on your attitude, depending on your choices, depending on your understanding of the kinds of trials there are, and because of the nature and purposes of God at work in the life of a believer, it's quite possible that there is no trial that you could go through that would be worthless. Depending on our reactions and our focuses and our maturity, some trials could be worth less. They have less of a desired effect than they could have, depending on us often, but none should be absolute vanity. Because of the resiliency of the human spirit and because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it takes extra effort to make a trial absolutely worthless. Think about that for a moment. Although people can find a way, we, myself included sometimes, we find a way to make matters worse. I've done it, you've done it, but we, are, but we can learn and we do learn. And so let's do that from our trials. In the midst of trials, choices uh, are some of the biggest differences. And one of the biggest differences to the outcome of trial is knowing that your choices, how you respond to that trial, what you understand about trials, what's your worldview when it comes to trials, that that's some of the greatest effect. Choices have consequences. Attitudes and motives as well as actions have consequences. So in the midst of trials, choices oftentimes seem even greater when we're in the midst of a trial, choices, and the consequences of choices. So as a general rule, good choices lead to good consequences, and bad choices lead to bad consequences. Stop and ask yourself, at the beginning and in the middle and at the end of any particular difficulty, how's my attitude? Is it helpful? or unhelpful? Is it cooperative or uncooperative? Am I looking at the best or the worst? How's my effort for taking part, my part of the responsibility in this? What can I learn from this situation? What are my motives? Is it all about me and myself and mine, or is there a way I can serve others in this situation? Am I looking for ways in the midst of the crisis or the trial or the struggle to benefit and to bless others? Peter is clearly telling these scattered Christians that the various trials they will face, even though they're temporary in nature, they will be continuous. They go throughout life. They change. Uh, we change uh, from a from a 
difficulty that a child may face in teething or going to first grade to the difficulty somebody might have in losing their teeth. There's all kinds of uh, situations, but they're going to be continuous throughout life. If you're not in the midst of a trial right now, give it time. If you're coming to the end of a trial, don't uh, take it for granted that that's the last one. If you're at the beginning of a trial, don't assume that it'll never end. So Peter's clearly telling these these scattered Christians that there's various trials and they will certainly face them. But they're not in vain. They're not worthless. They're not they're they're not avoidable. You can't avoid of them. Many of them. They're outside of our control. Some of them. You think about hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, fires, death, viruses. But you can be sure that there's a purpose and there can be purposeful in there. And the purpose is found in verse seven. Look at verse seven. These have come. And he's talking about the various trials, the many colored trials that people face. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold. The purpose is found there in seven and it's called a Hena clause. It's a straight, a strange word for so that. So that is a purpose phrase. These have come so that. Your faith of greater worth than gold, so that your faith of greater worth than gold. And so there's a purpose there, and to understand the purpose in the midst of the trial. And I need to just make this statement before I go any further. We oftentimes, from our perspective, we don't know the ble- the difference between a blessing and a curse between something good and something bad, oftentimes we uh, misinterpret, we misunderstand, we get it wrong. We we don't have all the, the big picture. But Peter tells us that there's a purpose here in these trials. So that is the why. And a famous philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, he said, a person who has a why can handle any what. So Peter is assuring them he's a shepherd. He told us in chapter five, verse one, as to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow fellow elder, these shepherds of God's flock. So he's speaking as a shepherd. He's speaking as an elder. He's speaking as one who cares about these people who are in these trials. And he wants them to understand at least two things in life are certain. There's trials and there's purposes. Trials, troubles, difficulty, struggles, they're connected with shortcomings of men living in a broken world. Some of those trials will be directly connected to personal failure, personal sin, personal shortcomings, personal mistakes and choices that people make. Some will be connected with the sin and failure of others. We live in communities. Our lives are affected by each other. Your choices affect other people and other people's choices affect you. We can't get away from it. That's the human condition. And some will be the result of living in just living in a broken, fallen world. 
a world of storms, a world of floods, a world of tornadoes, a world of fires, a world of sickness, death, viruses, and diseases. So Peter is assuring them, listen, you're going to go through trials. You're going to face trials of many kinds. But the purpose connected with God, that's the purpose. It's connected with God. He says, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So there's a purpose, and sometimes it's very difficult to see, very difficult to understand, especially if you're in the midst of it, because these trials overwhelm us. But God wants to sharpen your faith. God wants to refine our faith. He wants to increase our faith, improve our faith, strengthen our faith. He wants to build our character. God is at work in these things. Peter assures his readers that God is at work, that God is there involved in the unfolding of their lives. He loves and cares for them. He has provided and will continue to provide for them. Trials will come, but they will be used by God for your development. They will be used for God to prove genuine your faith. Your faith, our faith, that is of greater worth than gold. I mean, there's a lesson right there. Just think about that phrase, what Peter's saying. Your faith of greater worth than gold. Now, that's a challenge for modern-day American man to see that faith has greater value than gold. If I was going to offer you 100 pounds of gold or 100 pounds of faith, you would maybe think what I'm thinking right now. It sounds kind of ridiculous. 100 pounds of gold I can have in my hands. It's tangible and I can sell it. It's probably worth thousands upon thousands of dollars. What's faith worth? That's a really good question. What is faith worth? Peter says your faith is worth more than gold. Do you know that? I would invite you to ponder that and challenge that. Faith is worth more than gold. By giving the purpose for the trials here, so that your faith may be proved genuine, may be refined. The purpose doesn't equal the source of trials in every situation. Peter is giving them the gift of perspective. He's helping them see a bigger picture. When we're facing trials, it can seem absolutely overwhelming. It can block out the sun. They can uh, hinder our vision from seeing our loved ones as um, for us and our family as for us. And trials and tribulations can uh, just cause no end to grief and misery. Not unlike this virus has been doing, but this too shall pass. It, the virus is lasting longer than some thought. It's longer than we would all want. It's uh, taking lives that we don't want to be taken, but it's not permanent. Remember, this is a moment 
in our lives. This moment is not our life. So wherever you are in the midst of a trial, the trial is a, a moment in your life, but the trial is not your life. Peter's perspective is to consider God's purpose in the trial. And though God is sovereign, he's not the source of every trial, even though he can certainly use every trial and any trial for his good purposes. God's not the source of evil. There's barbaric and horrible things that people do to one another. God is not the source of that. He's at work in the life of a believer despite evil. Evil's not sovereign. God is. The word sovereign refers to God being all-powerful. He's over all things. But he is not evil, and he doesn't tempt us with evil. He uses trials, no matter the source, to strengthen the believer's faith. And Peter certainly implies and clearly states some of those trials come directly from God himself. Look at chapter 4. If you didn't, maybe you haven't had a chance to read through the book of Peter before, I would encourage you. Um, it looks like this is where the chapel family is going to be landing for the next uh, couple of weeks or months. We're going to work through our way through Peter, the book of Peter. He uses the word suffering over 16 times in different ways. But chapter 4, look at what he says in verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. I think about sometimes when I've watched uh, people come into a situation that's difficult, and uh, they throw up their hands like, what? Me? I have to go through this? It's not something strange. It's something normal in this fallen world we live in. Trials come in various kinds and from various sources, and they all have the same purpose. If we're looking to God to refine that which has greater worth than gold, our faith. Peter says uh, that our faith will be proved. It will be proved genuine by the trials. And that faith can and will result in glory, praise, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And that's in the future when he's revealed. And he's revealed in our own lives on a daily basis when we trust him in the midst of things. And I've watched in other people's lives as they've gone through very difficult times. I've watched them trust God. And I saw Jesus there strengthening them helping them, walking alongside them. And so we, but Jesus is not yet revealed as he will one day be revealed, certainly. And that's what Peter says. That they may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So apparently your faith, once proved genuine, will result in praise to God. It, and God will receive praise from it. Who does not want to hear at the end of the day, at the end of their journey, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. Just as trials come in various forms, think of the different opportunities there are daily to bring honor and glory to God by trusting him in the midst of the trial. 
People, just like I said last week, people with hope respond differently to trials. People with faith respond differently to trials. And how right now in this situation, in your situation, whatever you're facing, and then the big picture in the face of this, this virus and the challenges there, how can you demonstrate your faith to those who are watching you? And how is your faith being proven and, and refined in this season? So trials and struggles and all kinds um, of situations that come up, they do not have in and of themselves a mind, a will, or emotions. Stop and think about that for a second. Trials don't have a mind. When your furnace goes out, when does it go out? It doesn't go out in the summer. It goes out in the middle of the winter, probably on the coldest day, probably just after a snowstorm when the repairman can't get there, when the wind is blowing. And your furnace is not mad at you. Your furnace didn't make a strategic plan to harm you. It went out because it was being used. Running off and on constantly because of the cold weather. Parts wear out. Things break down. Trials of this kind have no personal malevolence behind them. Think about when your car breaks down. When does it break down? When it's sitting in the garage or when you're on late? And you're on your way to a very important appointment. It broke down because it was being driven. It broke down because all things break down and malfunction, wear out, fall down, fade, spoil. The car makes no plan for your disaster. But there is such a thing as evil. Don't be mistaken. There is an evil and an evil personality. A being called Satan who works and seeks for our demise. That is not what Peter is describing here. There are distinctions between trials, and that's very important to know. There's at least four sources of trials. The individual's my, my personal choices, wrong behavior, even good behavior sometimes, living can bring suffering. So just individual's life and choices. Choices matter. They make differences. They can bring pain. They can bring goodness. And then number two, Satan's intentional purpose to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus told us that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And scripture tells us that Satan is a liar, a deceiver. He is certainly and openly and consistently against God and God's creation. And he doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't care who or how he harms. He just wants harm to be done. Number three, third source of trials and tribulations, the fact that we just live in a fallen and broken world. Sin has been set in motion. Suffering came with the fall, disease, sickness, illness, death. Suffering just is. It's part of this life. Number four, just the fact that our sovereign God is at work in and through suffering as part of judgment, as part of corrupt, uh, correction, as part of discipline. But also some of these problems that come that are just normal because of the fall, because of sin. God is still at work. 
And God is at work through suffering as part of refining his people, transforming us. And so I want to clear up one misunderstanding. There's a verse that's often quoted out of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Um, often quoted and misunderstood in um, the understanding of trials and difficulties. And let me just read it out of the, out of the NIV, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have, called, who have been called according to his purpose. So the idea here, God works and it says all things work together for the good. Some translate it that way. All things work together for the good. Understood correctly, we read that God is at work in all things. Cancer doesn't work. Vehicle breaks down, downs don't work. Furnace shutdowns don't work. Tornadoes don't work. God is at work in all things. And God is at work in all things. God has a mind. God has a will. God has a purpose. These things are indiscriminate. The word for trial and temptation have the same basic Greek word. The difference between trial and temptation is the context, the source, the purpose of the trial and temptation. God never tempts anyone to sin, the Bible says, but he tests everyone for strengthening. Parasmos, Paris, let me pronounce this properly. Parasmos is the word for trial and temptation. Same word. And here's the definition to make trial of, try, tempt, prove in either a good or a bad sense. In the classical Greek, this word was used as a medical test to prove health or disease. And there's two basic understandings of the word paramos, trials or temptations. One is trials with a beneficial purpose and effort. And temptation, which is definitely designed to lead one to do wrong. And so in verse 6, that's why Peter's saying about these trials, these have come so that the testing of your faith, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise glory. And so in this you greatly rejoice. In the midst of a trial, you greatly rejoice because you know God is at work. I'm going to read some of the uh, ways that this word is used throughout Scripture. There's uh, over 20 times in the New Testament where it's used, and I have some of those verses here. You think about in James chapter 1, the book just before Peter, James chapter 1, it says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So in the New Testament, this word um, parasmos is used 20 times. 
It's 12 times temptation, two times testing, three times trial, and four times trials in the plural. Here's some of the verses. In Matthew chapter 6, 13, it says this, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew 26, 41, Jesus told his disciples, he said, Stay here and keep watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Luke chapter 4, 13, speaking about the devil when he was going to tempt Jesus. It says, after the devil had tempted Jesus, he left him until an opportune time. Luke 22, 28, and you are those who stayed with me in my trials. Acts chapter 20, verse 19, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. There you see the word tested, you see the word trial, you see the word tempted. And then in 1 Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you that except what is common to man and God is faithful, he will not allow you to be tempted, to be tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up underneath it. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. And then the verse we previously read in 1 Peter chapter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. So what makes a difference between in Scripture when this word parosmos is going to be translated trial or translated temptation? So it infers trouble or trial, something that breaks the pattern of peace, comfort or joy and happiness in someone's life. That's the word that Peter is using. Try, trial, difficulty, struggle. Trials rightly faced are harmless. In fact, they're beneficial to the person who faces them as opportunities to mature. But faced wrongly, the same pressure becomes a temptation toward harm and toward evil. Uh, this interchange between these two words can lead to confusion and, and we could miss opportunities. But let's understand. Think about this at school. A test given by a teacher Within it has the same dynamic. One student looks at a math test as an opportunity to advance, to display how hard they studied, display what they know so that they can move on to the next level of math. The other looks at it like, I'm a victim. You're trying to prevent me. You're picking on me. So the same type of thing happens at practice. One athlete sees the pressure from the coach as a preparation to, per, to perform at a higher level, to prepare themselves for the opponent in the upcoming game. Another athlete sees pressure coming from the coach as being mean. You're picking on me. One sees the extra drills as strengthening them. The other sees it as an attempt to weaken them and make them want to quit. So a trial is a test or an temptation every single time. I hope we see how important this is, even in our parenting, in our relationships, in our education, in our coaching. To impress upon a person that they're a victim is one of the fastest ways to harm them. 
to impress upon them that life is filled with opportunities disguised as trials is to build them and prepare them. And that's what Peter's doing here. He's telling them plainly, parosmos, you're going to face parosmos. And God brings at times and allows at times trials into our lives to prove and refine and to mature and to grow and to strengthen to the quality of our faith and our character. So does a good parent. So does a good coach. So does a good leader. Every trial faced has the opportunity to become a strengthening factor for faith. But these trials also have the opportunity to become a snare, a stumbling block, depending how we respond to them. I found some pretty amazing verses in my study, and I know that I've read these verses before, but this morning and this week, they came uh, the fuller understanding of them. Look at in, uh, I'll read this. You can look it up later. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse three and four. Here's what Second Thessalonians, Paul said to the Thessalonians, verse three and four of, of chapter one. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So the persecutions and the trials in the Thessalonians' life was producing perseverance and faith. The same thing that James said, the same thing that Peter said. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul said this to them. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You know how a pearl is formed under the pressure in um, an oyster or a clam shell, the pressure, and how a diamond is formed in the earth from the pressure. That's what Peter's talking about. In uh, uh, Parazos can convey both ideas for good or evil because the primary difference is not in the trial itself, but in a person's response to it. I want to read a gripping story from a book. Um, I would highly recommend The Obstacle is the Way. Listen to this short story here. Tommy John, one of baseball's most savvy and durable pitchers, played pitchers, played 26 seasons in the majors, 26 seasons. His rookie year, Kennedy was president. His final year, it was George W. Bush. He pitched to Mickey Mantle and Mark McGuire. It's an almost superhuman accomplishment, but he was able to do it because he really got good at asking himself and others in various forms one question over and over. Is there a chance? Do I have a shot? Is there something I can do? And that question really came to bear down when in his season, listen to this. In the middle of the 1974 season, Tommy John blew out his arm, permanently damaging the ulna collateral ligament in his pitching elbow. Up to this point in baseball history and sports medicine, when a pitcher blew out his arm, that was it. They called it a dead arm injury, game over. 
John wouldn't accept that. Was there anything that he could do to give him a shot to get back to the mound? It turns out there was. The doctor suggested an experimental surgery in which they could try and replace the ligament in his pitching elbow with a tendon from his other arm. What are the chances of me coming at, back after the surgery? One in 100. And without it, no chance, they said. He could have retired. He could have quit. He could have whined. Why is me? But there's one in 100 chance. So with rehab and training, and the opportunity was partially in his control, he took it. And he won 164 more games over the next 13 seasons. That procedure is now famously known as the Tommy John surgery. It's interesting, for example, in Matthew chapter four, where we see Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. The devil comes to him offering him bread. Now, I, I doubt very much that it was moldy bread. It was probably the best bread that the devil could possibly get his hands on or produce. Fresh, baked, Amish friendship bread. There's nothing inherently evil in offering bread to a hungry man. But that's a trial. That's a temptation. It's the context. It's the source of the intentions that allow us to determine and the context. What was the purpose? Was it a temptation to sin so the word becomes temptation or was it a trial to grow? It's used the word test or trial all the way through test or temptation. But Jesus, by his actions, when he was tried, he proved himself faithful to God. You've heard the phrase, oh, he fell into sin. She stood the test. They went through the trial. We have the example of Job. His wife told him to curse God and die. But Job said, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. So what's happening in your life, in the trials that you're facing? What's going on for you in your heart and in your mind as you respond to the difficulties and the pressure? In the big picture, I have eight things I quickly close with that are the big picture of trials and temptations. Number one, they prove our faith genuine or they prove our faith false. Faith that's never been tested can't be trusted. And so God is going to test our faith to prove our faith, to strengthen our faith, to expose the weaknesses and to refine our faith. All these trials that we're going through in light of eternity, everything is temporary. And there are people going through right now tremendous hardships. Physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain, spiritual pain. They're going through the ringer. But everything in light of eternity is temporary. Number three, they're necessary. Trials, struggles are necessary to our growth. I take some time each day when I can to try to work out. I don't just lift weights that are two pounds. I lift weights that are pushing me and they're hard and they're difficult. 
and I, I lift them to strengthen my muscles, not to weaken them. So they're necessary to our growth. Number four, they're going to cause grief and sorrow, but not without benefits. Number five, these trials are multifaceted, various, and they come in a wide variety of kinds. Number six, ultimately, they will bring praise and glory to our good God. He is sovereign. He is in control. And when we trust him through these trials, he is glorified and we are bettered. Number seven, we are not going to fully understand until Jesus is fully revealed. Until God's plan is fully unfolded, we're not going to understand. That's why Peter gives us a heads up beforehand. And he writes to them. He says, listen, don't be surprised by these trials. They're going to come. You're going to face them. It's a normal part of life. But they have come with a purpose. And the verse ends there, when Jesus Christ is revealed. At the end of time, everything that's crooked will be made straight. Everything that's wrong will be righted. But until that time, we walk by faith. We endure. We hold the course. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Number eight and last, one of the most meaningful purposes and practices in life come when in the midst of trial, we come alongside someone else to strengthen them, to bear their weight, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So in the midst of a trial, you want to lighten your load? You want to lighten your trial? Keep your eye fixed on Jesus. You want to lighten your load? Consider what he has done. You want to lighten your load? Look for someone else right now who's in the midst of bearing a heavy load and come alongside them and walk with them and bear one another's burdens. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, the gold does. It may be proved, your faith, genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for examples in Scripture and in our lives, in our personal lives and in the lives of those we can walk with, those we can read about, those we can see, people who have trusted you in the past, people who are trusting you for the present and in the present. And we can see in the midst of trials, God, there seems to be always two opportunities, two outcomes, two ways of looking at it. One, that would build and refine and develop our faith and our character and our trust. And one that's going to be hard and going to cause us to be bitter and resentful and regretful. So, Lord, as we face these things that are sure to come, help us to look to you. 
Help us to hear Peter's words, his admonishment, so that we can greatly rejoice in the midst of difficulties, that we can trust you, that we can point to you, that our lives would have an element of shining in the sense that you said, let your light shine among men, that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in the midst of difficulties. And Father, we just thank you for your presence for those who are especially burdened at this time, that you would draw close to them, that you would open their eyes to see that your hand is on the thermostat and your eyes are wide open to their lives. You're fully aware, God, and you are at work. We trust you. We love you. We look forward to your revealing. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.